Good morning, Willow Burn. Uh, it's good to see you all. It's good to see some new faces as well. Always great to see Martins back, especially when they've got stuff to say. So thanks for that, Marcelo. And um, I think I'll also mention uh, my friends Yako and Jess are here. So if you don't know who they are, go and talk to them afterwards. I am going to embarrass them because they're an answer to prayer for me. They're the guys that have recently joined uh, Powder Change, moved to Toowoomba from Townsville to train with me for a year so that we can all go back to Townsville next year. So newsflash, it's not nonsense I've been talking about. It is happening and there's real people here to show it. So get to know them. Um, okay, back on track. Um, uh, this morning we're back in Revelation, uh, continuing our Do These, Word, Do These Words series. Uh, last week, Paco brought us Revelation 19. So that means this week, Revelation 20. Pretty obvious. Um, now, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a Christian yesterday, um, actually at Yucca and Jess's commissioning, and he said, oh, Revelation, oh, okay. I've always thought that was just kind of like meh, you know, like not really all that, like it's all weird, you know, is it, is it really relevant? And that's what I said to him, dude, you need to listen to our sermon series and send him the link. Um, anyway, I think like it's so relevant, especially this chapter today, hearing about Anthony, about Julie, people dying, people losing battles with cancer, like this world sucks in a lot of ways. But this chapter is the chapter where God deals with sin and evil forever, once and for all, which is fantastic. So it's both a victory chapter, but it's also got some dire warnings in it. Anyway, um, before I get going, I wanted to remind you all, as I always do when I'm up here, of our guiding principles for this series. Um, so we have a couple of rules or principles, if you like, that we prepare our messages on Revelation by. And they come straight out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So keep what is written in it, do it, do these words. So the principles we came up with when we started out, we want to do the words of Revelation, not just hear it, do it. We want to rely on the Holy Spirit to know and do the words of Revelation. We don't want to underinterpret. That is to say, oh, that's not really important, forget about it. Nor overinterpret, to say the Antichrist is Donald Trump, for instance, would be to overinterpret, to put a specific meaning on something that just isn't there. Um, so we want to do either of those things. Um, and we want to seek meanings for our interpretation from other parts of the word. Okay, so that sets up how we prepare what we're doing. Okay, so anyone who's a regular here knows my drill. I ask questions at different points, and most of them are not rhetorical. I actually expect answers, because I like interaction. I like to know you guys are awake and listening. Um, so, first one. How do you feel about ruling a country, or a continent, or a planet? Do you reckon you'd make a good king, queen, president? Totally. Tiff's all over this. Camille's like going, nope, I'm out of here. Anyone else? Ben will give it a crack. Yep. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? Anybody else? What do you reckon, Alan? You'd be all over it. <laughs> no comment, he says, just shaking his head at me. Okay, so yeah, obviously, um, ruling is not the first thing that, we, that jumps to mind when we think, what's my ideal career? Ruling a country, a nation, a continent, whatever. That's going to come into play later on. So, thanks heaps for answering. I'm going to pray and then get into the passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thank you for the freedom to speak your word in our country and to be able to proclaim it without any fear of persecution. Uh, Jesus, I praise you for what you've done for us, uh, not only for being willing to die for us, but being with us today, being willing to intercede before the throne of your Father and sending your Spirit to dwell with us. So, Jesus, please intercede for me today. Um, 
come before your Father and send your Spirit upon me so that I cannot say anything that isn't coming directly from you. Transform every word that's in my mind to a message that is coming directly from you to the hearts and ears of the people here today. Praise you, Father, for who you are. Don't allow me to say anything from selfish ambition or pride, but only what you'd have your people hear. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. Grab it and read along with me, or follow along. Either way, you can either read it for yourself as I read, or you can listen to me. But, Revelation 20, starting verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. <clears throat> he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is where we got a lot of our fire and brimstone messages from days gone by come from. Turn or burn and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot going on here in this chapter. For a summary, you might say, the devil's chained up, Jesus reigns in judgment with his saints for a thousand years, then the devil is freed, and in one last attempt to fight God, is utterly defeated and destroyed. Then all creation stands in judgment before the white throne of God. Judgment is served, and evil is done away with forever. It's a wrap. So that would be my uh, abstract, if you like, if I was writing a paper on this. Uh, this passage is both triumphant, in that Jesus, God, ultimately win once and for all. The devil himself is actually done away with at the end of this chapter. But it's also horrific, the description of the lake of fire and the things that happen to people that are absent from God. As God often does, here he holds out essentially two things. He's holding out in the one hand the promise of a wonderful eternal life with him 
if you're on his team. And at the same time, giving you a dire warning that if you're not on his team, it's all downhill. So you want to be on the right team. Um, this passage also brings up a lot of questions. This is where the whole idea of pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, and any other kind of millennial thing you can think of came from. Uh, so there's a lot of rabbit holes you can go down. There's other questions. These are some that I came up with. Is the thousand-year um, reign a literal one or a figurative one? Who are the saints that will reign with Christ? What will they reign over? Or who will they reign over? Is this reign, this ruling in heaven or on earth? Who on earth are Gog and Magog? And my personal favourite, who's the bookkeeper in heaven? Because there's books with lots of stuff written in them. Anyway, rabbit trails. I actually think there's nothing wrong with asking questions like those, but I'm not going to deal with many of them in the sermon. Because while they lead to great discussions and good Bible studies among Christians, I think there's actually a simple message in Revelation, and it's portrayed in this passage as well. And questions like that can be largely distracting when you've only got a short amount of time. So, and when I timed this message this morning, it was a little bit longer than our usual messages are, so stay posted. I'll try and get through it quickly. Um, so I'm just going to try and draw out what I feel is the core message. So start with me in verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. <clears throat> Can somebody get me a drink, please? I'm very dry. And I had a wisdom tooth extracted during the week, so it's hurting a bit. So this abyss that uh, Satan, the enemy of mankind, is locked in is not a nice place. The Greek word is abyssos. Um, it's used six times in the New Testament. It always refers to a place which is extremely difficult to escape from, a place of torment, a place of suffering. It's used once in the Old Testament, a very similar Hebrew word, as used by David. So I want to just show you a couple of those references. Psalm 140 verse 10 is where David talks about the abyss. He's speaking about evil people and he says, let them be thrown into the fire, into the abyss, never again to rise. Different translations will say things like deep pits or deep waters, but the idea is simple. This is a place that is not nice to be and it's very difficult to escape from. Uh, the next reference to the abyss happens in Luke 8.31, where you might remember the story of Jesus casts a legion of demons out of a guy. Okay, So starting at verse 30, thanks Barb, Appreciate. And Peter, team effort. Okay, so in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 30, there's the story of Jesus casting out a legion of demons out of a man. So I'll start reading from verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered into him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these instead. So he gave them permission. These legion of demons that Jesus has just thrown out of a man fear the abyss. They do not want to be sent there. They'd rather go into a herd of pigs. Who would want to inhabit a herd of pigs? But anyway, um, they feared the Son of God. They knew they couldn't defy his authority to banish them. So they begged him. These are demons, enemies of mankind, begged him, recognized his authority not to be sent to this abyss. It's a not a nice place. Paul also uses the term abyss in Romans 10, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 10, verse 7. He says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Same thing's going on here. He's essentially saying, It's no more possible to go down into the abyss and come back up 
than it is to ascend into heaven and bring Christ back down with you. It's impossible to escape from. So why am I going on about this abyss? Well, the last couple of references, the last five, are all in Revelation itself. We've seen them before. The locusts that come out and torture people in Revelation chapter 9, they come out of the abyss. Um, the beast is said, in some versions it says he arises from the sea. In other versions it says he arises from the abyss. Just a translation thing there. But the, the word abyssos is used. So the beast um, that we've seen multiple times in Revelation 11 and in Revelation 17 is called, it says that he came out of the abyss. But the one reference I really want to draw your attention to happens in chapter 9. So go back there to chapter 9 for a second in your Bibles. All your smartphones. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. We've seen all this before, but I just want to um, make a correlation here. So Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. So this star who fell to earth, the word star is also sometimes in translated angel. It's basically referring, I believe, to Satan when he was thrown out of heaven and fell to earth. He was given the key to the abyss. And when he opened it, smoke rose out and all the locusts came out and started torturing mankind, anyone that wasn't marked with God's mark. He's given this authority. He doesn't have the ability to open it on his own. Like those demons that recognize Jesus' authority, they beg not to be sent there. Satan doesn't have the authority to let them out. Only when he's given this key um, does he have that authority. And he immediately does it here in Revelation chapter 9. He immediately unlocks it and lets out the locusts, lets out Abaddon, their leader. God has given him this permission, this authority. He doesn't have it on his own. This is why where the correlation I was trying to draw. Come back to Revelation 20 with me, and we see the divine justice of God. This very abyss, which the demons fear, which Satan himself opened to unleash demons upon humanity, is where he's chained up and tossed in. That's a bit of divine irony right there. The one place that no demon wants to go is where he's going for a thousand years. It's a place where he has no power. He can't escape. He has no authority. He has no one to tempt or torture. He's simply stuck there, sitting there, thinking about all the times he failed in his war against Christ. So I think that's kind of ironic, but it's also very just. Um, I wanted to also point out that the abyss, where Satan is chained for a thousand years, and the lake of fire are different, at least at this point. Um, we saw last week in chapter 19, the lake of fire is where um, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into. So flick back over to 19, Revelation chapter 19. So Adrian showed us the victorious King Jesus, the white horse rider. He comes out of heaven, he smashes the beast, he obliterates his enemies. And in verses 19 and 20, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So they go in the lake of fire. Next thing that happens, chapter 20 starts, and an angel wrestles down Satan, chains him up and tosses him into the abyss. Different place. If it was the lake of fire, it would have simply said so. And we find out at the end of the chapter here that he's tossed into the lake of fire with them. But not yet. He's locked away for a thousand years. 
The King of Kings and Lord of Lords descends upon the earth and reclaims the key. In locking him away, this angel takes back the key, chains up the devil, and uh, seals it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations. That leads to my second question. If you were God in this point, why would you put him in prison for a thousand years? Why wouldn't you just toss him in the lake of fire and be done with it? Why go through another thousand years and then let him out for another rebellion, which is what happens? Why not just do away with him altogether? Right then, right there. He's already chained up, he's already captured, beast and prophet in the lake of fire. That's where the devil's going in the end. Why wouldn't you just chuck him in there? What do you think? A grace period for people to come to Christ? Yep. By the way, I don't believe in wrong answers when I ask for opinions, so I'm not going to be calling anyone out on bad theology unless it's clearly unbiblical. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just want to hear what you think. It could be that, a grace period. What else? Yep, there's a finality of judgment that needs to be brought out. There's a plan that's being stuck to. Hey, bro. Um, what else? Any other ideas? You got one, Yako. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll stop picking on people. All right, I will tell you what I think in just a minute. I think the text makes it pretty clear that the devil must be set free to deceive the nations. It says that at the top. Uh, I've forgotten the verse. Yeah, verse 3. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So it makes it clear that he must be set free. There's a set plan that's being followed here. As I've said in some of my previous sermons, God's always in control. Um, the why is much more interesting to me. So for our quick history of Satan, rushing back to the beginning, we know that at some point Satan was a, a powerful angel. He was in heaven. He worshipped God. He, he trusted God along with all the rest of the angels. But at some point he rebelled, whether it was before the creation of the world or sometime after Adam and Eve were created, we don't know. But we are told that he rebelled against God and he led a bunch of the angels away with him. Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says he prowls about after us like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. He is called the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. Fast forward to here in Revelation, he just tried to defeat God in battle and he was smashed by the white horse rider, King Jesus himself. Then he's tossed into this pit for a thousand years in prison. You'd think a thousand years in prison would break anybody, right? If I had to spend a few days in prison, I'd be bawling and whining and scratching my fingernails out, let me out, let me out, let me out. Satan is in there a thousand years. No power, no one to deceive, all on his own. You would think that would break him and make him repent. He's been beaten every time he's gone up against God, but it doesn't. The second he gets let free, straight back into it. No remorse, no sorrow, no regrets. After a thousand years, he just tries to do it all again. <laughs> he leads another rebellion. He tries to deceive the non-Christians of the world and he succeeds. He brings numbers like the sand on the seashore to battle against God. One last rebellion. Why would God allow this? Why would God let him go and rot and then just let him out to do it again? Well, I think there's a couple of things. This is a proof to every created being, created being everywhere, that Satan will not repent. He's had plenty of chances, he's had plenty of time, but he will not repent of his wickedness. And it also allows him one last opportunity to draw up sides. 
I think, and this will come out later, that there are people living on the earth during the reign of Christ who are only serving him with their lips. Their hearts do not belong to him. And the second the devil is released, he leads this massive rebellion and people are quite happy to follow him. We'll see more of that in a second. But that is a bigger question for me. Not why would God allow him to be released again, but why would the people of the world reject God? There's peace in Christ's kingdom. Life is wonderful. Life is great. It's better than it's ever been on earth while Jesus and his saints are ruling, reigning for a thousand years. But they don't like God's moral law because they don't love him. They obey him because he's operating from a position of power. But the second the devil is back out, ready to lead another rebellion, straight back after the same old enemy. Men and women, you and I, we love our sin. That's the way we're born. That's the way, unfortunately, um, all of humanity is born. We're all tarnished with sin and we love it. We go back to it whenever we get the chance. And so these people in the future, even during the reign of Christ, they love their sin and they hate God. They don't rebel because there's no leader. But the second he's back out, this rebellion after the wonderful millennial kingdom will be just one final justification for God sending everyone who rejects Jesus into the lake of fire. It's one last chance to say, look guys, you blew it again. This is Garden of Eden all over again. I made it perfect. I made it as good as it could be. And the second he was back out to tempt you, you all followed him. God won't need any more justification, as if he already did, which he doesn't. Um, but so come back with me to Revelation 20, verse 4. The devil's been locked away in the abyss for a thousand years, and now John says, I saw thrones. Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They hadn't worshipped the beast or its image and hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So next question. Who do you think is involved in this first resurrection? Who are the people that come to life and reign with Christ? clearly says some of them, those that were beheaded for their witness, those who didn't receive the mark of the beast, didn't worship his image. Is that all of them? Who else do you think will be there? Come on, don't just leave me hanging. The church, all the church, cool. Anybody else? Those who came to Christ in the time of tribulation. And that pretty much covers it. I think all Christians, all saints, will be part of this resurrection. It says here, those who have, um, sorry, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Um, I believe it will be the souls of all the faithful saints of all time who will be resurrected here in this first resurrection. They'll come to life and reign with Christ. It says, blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. And then down at the bottom in verse 14, it says, the lake of fire is a second death. But we see in here in verse 6, the second death has no power over them. The people that suffer the second death are the non-Christians. Therefore, all these ones here that are raised are the Christians, all the saints. This is the first resurrection. This is a literal bodily resurrection. They come to life, it says. It doesn't say, you know, there were spirits running around. They came to life. And also, it's, the verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life. 
So some people are still dead. But the saints all come to life, physical, glorified bodies like Jesus had after he was raised from the dead. First resurrection, saints only, Christians only. And they will be priests of God and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now I have to address the question of the thousand years, which is annoying because um, it's very divisive what you think actually is going on here. So I'm going to flick it out to you again. Next question. What do you think the passage means when it says the saints will reign with Christ for a thousand years? Um, a thousand years. It just means what it says. <laughs> what does it mean we'll reign with him for a thousand years? <laughs> we'll have work to do. Mm -hmm. This first resurrection is all the saints of all time. Are we all going to... How does a group of people reign or rule? We have a community. Yep. There's one king, King Jesus. Now, how do we, as a body of... It's going to be a lot of people. All of the saints, all the Christians from all time. Tribulation saints. Church period, what we're in now, saints. Old Testament saints. It's a lot of people. My, my thinking is that we'll act the same way we do now, as Christ's ambassadors. I don't think that this... Um, earth is going to be necessarily entirely keen on Jesus being king. But we, the saints, the resurrected church and the saints of all time, will operate as Christ's police force, ambassadors. Essentially, we, he will be the king and we will be the ones that enforce his will. However exactly we do it, that's how we reign with him. That's my idea. So... Um, the next few things I'm going to say are my own personal opinion. <laughs> I just need to get that out there because of our uh, commitment to interpretation uh, not being under or over. So let me start by saying that I don't think this is a closed-fisted theological issue, how you deal with the thousand years. Whether you think the thousand-year reign is literal or figurative has absolutely no impact on your salvation and standing with God. Whether you think Jesus reigns from heaven with the saints or is literally on earth walking around or riding a white horse, during this period doesn't actually matter. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord is what matters. However, we do need to have some sort of interpretation to be able to move forward with this passage and to understand how the rest of the book and the rest of um, yeah, Revelation itself unfolds. So the next few things I'm saying are my own personal opinion. I believe the thousand years is a literal reign of Christ here on this earth, not the brand new earth, not the recreated earth. That's coming in Revelation 21. But first, before it comes, evil has to be done away with forever, which isn't happening until the end of this chapter. So this thousand-year reign after the devil's locked away, set up by the rider on the white horse, King Jesus, I believe is a literal thousand years which Christ will rule the earth and the resurrected saints with their immortal bodies will be his co-rulers. We'll go into all the planet and um, exercise God's will, Jesus' will. Um, and here, well, I have a few reasons. Back in Revelation 19, we see King Jesus, the white rider. He invades earth, obliterates his enemies, tosses the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And then Revelation 20, immediately following that, we see the devil chained and locked away. We see the saints of all time raised to reign with Jesus for a thousand years. They sit in judgment over the earth. They enforce the moral law of God. And I want to back this up with some passages from Isaiah. So if you want to head back to Isaiah, chapters 4, 11 and 35. Actually, just 4 and 35, 11 is only one verse. So, but Isaiah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 35 have a couple of things I wanted to use to speak into this and why I think it's literal rain. 
So starting in Isaiah chapter 4, at verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have not found any reference in history to these things happening to Jerusalem or Zion. Having smoke covering the whole city and shining of a flaming fire and by night. There's no record in history of that happening yet. So I think it's still to come, and I think it happens during the thousand-year reign. Now, Isaiah 11, a famous passage which includes the idea of a lion laying down with a lamb, which is fairly popular. Um, there's a verse, verse 9 in chapter 11 of Isaiah says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So Isaiah 11, 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm going to pick that up in a second, but finally, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 8 to 10. Isaiah 35, 8 to 10 says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, some will say these Isaiah verses refer to the new heavens and the new earth, not the millennial reign of Christ. They could be right. They could be wrong. I think it could easily be either, or indeed both. But notice how it talks about the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord. That was Isaiah 11:9, And as a result, no one shall hurt or destroy. No one shall hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, because the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I reckon that means the earth will know of God, knowledge of God, and adhere to his moral law, since Jesus and his saints are ruling. But they won't all be happy about it. Then Isaiah talks about the highway in the city of God. He says, no unclean shall pass upon it. To, them, to me, to say that no unclean shall walk upon a road means that there are still unclean people around. Is that a fair enough in inference? Um, to me, that's a direct inference that there are still unclean people around. Not everyone is happy in their hearts about the rule of the king and his saints. Because mankind is sinful at heart. And there will still be people living on the earth under the reign of King Jesus and his saints during this time, during this thousand year reign. Mankind is sinful at heart. That is why it will be so easy for the devil to raise his final rebellion after his release from the abyss. So I think it'll be a literal reign. I think it'll be a thousand year reign. I think Jesus and his saints with their immortal bodies will rule over the earth. The earth will go on as it is now in a sense, but it will be made the best version of it that can be. Um, energy consumption, famine, all that will be out of the way because everyone is now living according to King Jesus' moral law. So it will be the best the earth has been since Eden with King Jesus on the throne. But the second the devil is released, in verse 7. The last rebellion. 
Verse 7 of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, the city he rules from, Jerusalem. Sorry, that's not there. I added that bit. Just a disclaimer. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So a couple of things. Just quickly, the reference to Gog and Magog seems a little obscure. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about who exactly it is, but I think it serves to identify this rebellion uh, coming from all corners of the earth um, with the same kind of wicked people who attacked Jerusalem in Ezekiel 38-39. There's a leader, Gog, who comes from the land Magog in Ezekiel 38-39, and they attack Jerusalem. Uh, there's some fundamental differences between the two, and I don't really have time to go into it because it's long already, but I think that John using Gog and Magog here is serving as an illustration to identify a type of rebellion, a type of wicked people, just like when he called the world religious system Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. It wasn't a literal person, it wasn't the literal city of Babylon, it was to identify a type of idolatry, a religious system. Same thing's going on here, Gog and Magog, same kind of wicked rebellion that Ezekiel talks about. And the rest of it's all pretty straightforward. In my understanding, if I'm right about the thousand-year reign being literal, it's been set up with HQ in Jerusalem on earth, this earth, not the new earth. The resurrected saints rule with Christ from there, much coming and going among the peoples of earth. God's moral law is the law of the day. Saints administer it for King Jesus. The earth is peaceful and prosperous. Humanity knows a golden age like they've never known before. No outside evil influences. No demons, no devil around. The only thing that is still evil is the sin that lies in the hearts of man. Not the resurrected saints, but the humans. That are built and i think there'll still be church happening during this period and the resurrected saints could come to church with the people that are still mortal in that time and then the clock winds down the devil is released god's final test for humanity after experiencing a wonderful world under king jesus will they choose this time round, eden all over again to stand with him or will they follow the old enemy once again and sadly humans suck as we can see here, vast numbers are deceived. Numbers like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth. They come from everywhere to take the HQ of King Jesus. Kick him out, send him back on his white horse. We don't want him anymore. We've got the devil back. Idiots. Imagine what the devil thinks. So on the one hand, his pride and arrogance could be saying things like, this time I've got him. I was beaten at Calvary. I was tricked there. I was thrown out of heaven by the lamb. I was beaten by the faithfulness of the church. I was beaten by the white horse rider, but I've got another chance. And this time I've got him. Cornered in Jerusalem, all the saints with him. We'll wipe him out once and for all. I've got the armies of the whole earth on my side. I'm going to win. Or maybe his arrogance and pride has given way to desperation. After a thousand years in prison, does he know he's beaten? Doesn't he know it's just one more fruitless attempt to usurp the throne of the Most High? He's never won before and he's never going to win. Yet in his pride, his arrogance, and his total surrender to evil, he still won't stop. He's actually our enemy. This mighty angel sets himself up against God because he hates us. He hates humanity, and he wants to destroy as many of us as he can. So this is not, he knows he's going to lose. This is one last desperate attempt to bring down mankind, to take them with him to his doom. And how easily he deceives them. 
how easily he deceives us, leads us away from God, only to betray us to our ruin. Well, never again. And that's the really good part about this chapter, coming to the great white throne and what happens to him. But before that, a story. Have you ever stood or been near a large fire? Never mind, not a bonfire, a bushfire, a raging bushfire tearing across the countryside. Who's been near one of those before? Andrew, Sarah, Alan, Paco, a few of us, Ben. All right, so I'm going to tell you about a time when that happened to me. Now, this is back when I was about 13, living on our family farm near Rockhampton. There was a bushfire burning in the Bursica Ranges across the highway. That's all right, kilometres away, happens every summer, no worries. Ask Camille, she grew up in Rocky. We got used to being smoked out every summer. But these fires uh, were a little bit different. They were burning very strongly, they were spreading right through the ranges, and there'd been drought for several years back then. It was very dry. The land was parched. Even the trees dropped their leaves, very brittle, so there was a lot of fuel on the, on the ground. All the bush and stuff, all the grass was dry. Um, then there's a wind that started blowing, and that was what everyone had been saying, oh, as long as there's no wind, we'll be right, we'll be right, it'll just burn itself out. People had been putting in their fire breaks, and then the word came over the UHF that, uh, yep, the wind had started blowing from the south, and the fire was likely to jump the highway. Within half an hour, it had done just that, jumped over a two-lane highway, which is separated, and uh, yeah, there was different ideas about whether it stuff blew over with the wind behind it, or whether it burned through culverts and things, but either way, it crossed the highway, leaving our farm and all the others around them wide open to the charge of the fire. And it was scary. Before long, we could see it. Um, yeah, I remember like the sound. We could hear the sound, fearsome sound, miles away. Before we could even see the fire, we could hear it. The roaring, the cracking of twigs and branches, crashes as logs and trees snapped and came down. And then we saw it come tearing over the hill a couple of kilometres away. <laughs> We'd been putting in fire breaks, but we thought, yeah, we'll be right. And then we saw this wall of flame, nearly 20 feet high. Um, we abandoned the house, all of us, all the neighbours in there, we just left. <laughs> we bailed and went to the only place around that was clear of vegetation, which was a fairly high hill which had recently been dozed to build a house on. And there we just stood helplessly watching it as this fire hurtled towards our livestock, our sheds, our fences, our houses. And we thought it was all gone, it was all going to be gone. And I just remember a guy who wasn't even Christian, a friend of my dad's, one of the neighbours, as a guy that had been a miner, a very rich guy, and he said, guys, we've got to pray, because whatever, whatever God you believe in, that's the only hope we've got now. And so we started praying. Um, even the families, the other four families that were with us that didn't believe in God, they joined in just begging God for a miracle. And the wind stopped. Just stopped dead. No more wind. One moment it was howling, driving the fire towards us, all that fuel in front of it, and then it stopped. And 20-foot flames became a couple of random, intermittent um, places that were still burning. And I was amazed. I'd been horrified one minute, thinking, yeah, we're going to lose everything, and then it just all stopped because we prayed. That's the power of God. He can stop a raging fire, but some he won't choose to stop. That was just an earthly fire. That was just a hot summer fire with a strong wind behind it. It terrified me. This lake of fire, reserved for the devil and his angels, it's older, it's stronger, it's hotter, and it has an inexhaustible fuel supply. It feeds on and burns up evil. That's what it's for. It was made for the devil and his angels, the ones that betrayed God. And now it's still burning. 
It burns, its fuel is the evil and the sin of all creatures of all time, and it's fanned into an inferno by the righteous winds of the wrath of God. It is a horrifying and ghastly end. And that is where Satan is going. That's where he ends up in verse 10. A wretched, miserable end, totally deserved. Wouldn't repent after a thousand years in prison with no opportunity to do anything wrong. So he's going to get what's coming to him. And then the really cool part happens. The great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne, verse 11, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And so on and so on. <laughs> I've read it a few times now. Here is the last judgment. The Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the Creator God, sits on his great white throne. He calls all creation to give account. Heaven and earth flees from his presence. There is nowhere to hide. Terrible and awesome is God in his sovereign justice. All the dead of all time stand in judgment. The land, the sea, Hades, even death itself completely release their captives. Do you realize this is the only time in human history where all the human beings God ever intended to create and did create will be together? The saints are there already, reigning, ruling with God on his side. Everyone else from all time who's died, everyone God ever intended to create, the entire human race will be here together at the great white throne. Some already standing on God's side and all the others standing in judgment. What it would, how awesome would it have been if they were all going to be with God for eternity as he originally purposed? But they're not. They all stand in judgment. No human soul is left anywhere but in the presence of almighty God. Those who died before Jesus came into the world, those from far-flung lands who never heard the gospel, those who refused and rejected Jesus all their days, those who lived through the tribulation, those who lived through this last rebellion, those who are still living, everyone will be there. Every murdered child, every lost soul, every human being from all time, finally together before the Lord. And no one questions him as Lord anymore. We've just seen the old enemy tossed into the fire. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the books are opened. Every thought, every word, every deed of every human being that's ever lived or ever will live is written in these books. That's why I asked the question, who's the bookkeeper in heaven? Because God has a legal ledger of the actions, the thoughts, the deeds, everything that mankind has ever done. He has a legal ledger. It's massive. Maybe it's a million ledgers. The record of humanity and its response to God. Every obedience, every rejection, every single detail is recorded and God weighs humanity, all of them, each one personally by his deeds or her deeds, and every single one is found wanting. No one is good enough. No one's deeds make them holy enough or good enough or righteous enough to stand with the king. And then another book is opened. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I took a little flight into the into imagination and I like to imagine King Jesus the lamb that was slain stepping up before his father and presenting one book just one book as opposed to all the other books of all their records and deeds and saying this is the last book the book of life and he opens it and this is the name this is the book where every name is written in the saving blood of King Jesus himself all the other books don't matter this one matters. Are you in this book or not? And anyone whose name is found in his book, the book of life, joins the saints around the throne of God. What a wonderful, perfect, majestic moment. 
My deeds no longer matter. They no longer condemn me because my name is right there, written in blood, Jesus' blood. And God says, come on over. You're on our side. I mean, I'll already be there, but if I was, because I'll probably be dead by then. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, you're with, if your name is written in that book, you will go and walk freely, joyfully, in total adoration and worship to the king's side, to the throne of grace. But there'll be a whole vast, massive multitude of names that are not found in the book of life. And oh, how bitter and awful that will be for them as they watch others leaving the crowd and going over to God's side where they've been, where they made the choice to be. The realisation comes over them that they were always wrong. They're left facing the righteous wrath of the throne, the great white throne. And as the noise of that eternal inferno rushes up to fill their ears, they realise we really got it wrong. And they're going after their master that they chose to rebel with over and over again. And they're cast into the lake of fire. Then the really good part, death and Hades are hurled in as well. All evil, all sin, all cancer, gone forever. That is the second death. It is complete. The judgment of God is finished. Evil is no more. Death is no more. Perfect justice for eternal crimes is eternal punishment. And that sets the stage for what comes next, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Ben will take us through next week. So in conclusion, how do we do these words? That's our series, Revelation, Do These Words. I'll, as I said at the start, I believe the message of this passage and by extension the whole book of Revelation is actually quite clear. The short version is Jesus wins, join his team and get ready because he's coming back. The longer version is right here, right now, live as a mirror of the king. Live a mirror of his glory, his grace. Don't live as if you're still a saved to sin because you're not. You've been freed. Your name is written in the book of life if you have surrendered your life to King Jesus. So live that way now. You are sovereignly saved. The second death, that awful lake of fire, has no power over you. This text says it. Cancer has no power over you. My friend Anthony, I met him twice. He lived this. He knew that second death had no power over him. He lived like Jesus was right there beside him every day, right up to the end. And it's almost his last words said, I get to be with Jesus and that's going to be awesome. So live that way. Dive into God's word. Revel in his grace toward you and speak out his gospel to change those around you. Dwell in the power of his spirit. Let him change you into a walking, talking citizen of heaven, ambassador for King Jesus. He's coming back soon and may he find us faithful. I just want to read a passage from Matthew to finish off. I know it's been long. I apologize. There's a lot in there. Um, this passage from Matthew helps me to know what I need to do to do these words in preparation for the return of the king. Goats. Starting in verse 31. I'm sorry, I forgot the chapter. <laughs> I didn't write it down. But anyway, it's verse 31, the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I was sick, and you looked after me. Then the righteous will answer him on the right-hand side, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did 
for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. And they'll also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So how do you do these words? Look after the least of these. Follow King Jesus now. Thank you.